Hey. So, how are you guys doing? Good. Good. It's getting to the end of the term. Yeah. It's Friday. It's Friday, it's Friday, which is unusual because normally we record these on Wednesday morning mm-hmm. before my class. We did record on Wednesday morning. We tried. Well, we tried. We tried. Yeah, I okay. Here we try again. I screwed it up somehow. But the advantage is now we're on a beautiful Friday afternoon. Mm-hmm. That's right. Because it's after 12 o'clock. We get to have some beer. We have beer. some beer. That's yeah. right. Which we rarely it's do a real treat. at eight o'clock in the morning. Yeah. yeah, rarely. So yeah, and it kind of makes sense that we're a bit more relaxed because we're talking about a more relaxed mm-hmm. subject today. This week was fun. It was fun researching this stuff, being able to uh, watch some movies instead of combing through CIA files and FBI stuff that's been heavily redacted. And then I ended up this morning going through 150 pages of FBI files. Anyways. Anyway, of course you did. Yeah, yeah. of course you of did. Course you Just did. out of habit. So what is it that we're talking about today? We are going to be looking at some films that have some sort of conspiracy within them. Yeah, conspiratorial movies. Yeah. Which in that way, it's like less depressing in a way too, because we're always covering these really heavy, most of the time, these really heavy topics or yeah. something that's quite depressing so this is like it's fiction and we can kind of like you you can have your disbelief in there a little bit yeah it'll still get depressing i'm sure yeah it'll, oh, get, oh, depressing. Yeah, it'll get depressing yeah. Yeah. yeah but you know it's interesting though in uh trying to pick our movies i i don't know if you guys had this trouble narrowing it down because once you look into movies with conspiracies in them or about conspiracies oh yeah there's so the many out huge. there it is really huge and we're really only coming with three i kind of snuck a fourth one in so these are strong about, choices though these are really like a-list choices here mm-hmm. i think the reason why there's so many conspiracy movies is because conspiracies are such compelling narratives they're such interesting stories that they just they fit the movie format so well that's true i mm-hmm. guess i mean in one way every murder movie you've ever seen is conspiratorial right yeah. anytime yeah, something's true. being cons- like even some romantic comedies would sort of technically be that's conspiracy true. theories because people be <laughs> hiding stuff or pretending to be someone right? else or some nonsense even mrs doubtfire i mean oh that's true a that's a cute example yeah <laughs> nice example i haven't i've never seen that i bet you it hasn't it's a huge aged conspiracy well. it's a it, i you know i haven't seen it either so uh i have seen it i have not rewatched it so i don't know how well mm-hmm. it ages uh, the other thing I, I considered is that we could include TV episodes as well, but then I thought then it would just oh, be X Files. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It would just that's be true. three X Files episodes. Maybe. Oh, I would watch um, Homeland too. Oh, Homeland yeah. has some like deep government uh-huh. conspiratorial sure. stuff in there. Uh, maybe we could do a special mentions or you know things that didn't make it on our top list at the end. And- uh, that's a good mm-hmm. idea. Okay. Suggested viewing. Suggested sure. viewing for conspiracy theorists. See, but even though this is a lot lighter than our, our usual fare, I think it's still important. I think that a lot of how we understand the world, a lot of what we think the world is, doesn't come from our direct perceptions or come from academic pursuits. A lot of the way we understand the world comes from pop culture, comes from movies and television. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. And I think uh, what we discovered as well, I think, in, in talking about this to our, in our lead up is uh, how much they also mirror society to some extent or pick up themes in society and you can sort of almost read back into what's going on in mm-hmm. that town, culture, world, whatever from from the themes that the movies pick up. Yeah, it reflects the time, and I think that'll be pretty clear when we go through our films, too. Mm. Yeah, yeah, because I think what we should probably do is go through like the historical and social context where the movie takes place, when okay. the movie was made, and then we'll do like a plot summary, mm-hmm. and then we'll talk about some conspiratorial aspects, and then, uh, yeah, and then... Sweet. Now, which one are we going to start with? Uh, let's start with me, because... I think my film is the oldest. It takes place in the 1950s. This is The Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Is that right? Invasion of the Body Snatchers, 1956. Now, this one's been made four times, but the one that I'm specifically talking about today is the original 1956, based on the book, which I believe was based on like a magazine serial. Oh, wow. 
So this is a story that's been told a lot in a lot of decades in a lot of different ways. All right, so let's go back. 1956. I'm there. Yeah, there's... You guys are all black and white suddenly. Yeah, yeah we're at the <laughs> sock so hop. Yeah. Uh, we're listening to, I guess, the big bopper. Yep. Yeah, who sounded like... Oh, I can't do ah. it. Uh, anyway, I think it's the nice big try, bop, though, Nathan. That's really nice. Yeah, yeah. It was, yeah. It, no, the big... Oh, anyway. Okay, so <laughs> the poodle skirts... Okay. Leather jackets. Roller, mm-hmm. roller, roller skates. Yep. Um, racism. Right. Yeah. Racism. White, white picket fences. Yep. Yep. 1956, the main thing that I want to focus on, and actually really one of the main defining characteristics of the 1950s, was this idea of the second red scare. Uh, the fear of communism that was super pervasive in basically all aspects of North American life. Hmm. Now, I say it's the second Red Scare because there had been an earlier Red Scare in the 20s, a combination of the fact that the Russian Revolution had happened, uh, the fact that uh, the labor movement in the United States was starting up, and so there was a lot of fear that there was communist infiltration, perhaps America might have a Russian Revolution of its own. But the one that I want to really talk about is the 1950s one, because it was truly like one of the best times for absolute runaway paranoia. Mm-hmm. This is something that uh, we've talked about before, but we are sort of connoisseurs of paranoia. That's right. And the finest vintages of paranoia, I think, personally, I prefer 1950s vintage paranoia. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think we're, yeah. Elena and I are kind of into the 70s. Yeah, we we like the bouquet of yeah. 1970s paranoia. Yeah. There's some great 1970s. Yeah, it is very good. So we'll get to that. Okay. Why the fear? Why the terror? Why were people building bomb shelters in their backyards? Of course, this was the beginnings of the Cold War, a time that uh, the Soviets and the Americans, who had an ideological conflict between capitalism and communism, despite being allies in the Second World War, as soon as that war was over and they no longer had the common enemy of, of fascism in Germany, those ideological differences basically tore them apart. Uh, the two sides simply could not coexist together. It was, it's like an offense to capitalism that communism exists, and it was an offense to communism that capitalism, that capitalism even existed. For a while, the Americans weren't too concerned about this. Between 1945 and 1949, while they were aware that the Soviets had a massive army and a huge air force, they weren't that worried because, of course, for those four years, the Americans had something that nobody else had that would ensure that they would be safe forever. And of course, that thing was... The atomic bomb. The atomic bomb. doesn't matter how big your army is. Like, if you can level an entire city with a bomb, nobody's going to mess with you. And the Americans were the only ones who had it. Things were going to be safe and peaceful for America forever. Right up until 1949, when, of course, the Soviets, using stolen plans, detonated their own atomic bomb on 29th of August. And it might be worth just dwelling on that for a moment. The stolen plans. Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, maybe not as much Ethel as Julius, but certainly uh, Soviets got the plans from uh, spies that were operating in the United States. Yeah, the I think Soviets, this is... uh, they even had spies in the Manhattan Project, which was the A-bomb project in World War II. Top-level secrecy, like the most security possible, and yet the Soviets still managed to get spies in there. And I think this is going to be super relevant for what you're about to talk about, because... It wasn't completely off the wall to think that Mm -hmm. America was being infiltrated by the Soviets, that they did have designs on American technology, and that they were trying to, in one way or another, affect what was happening. For sure. And the other thing was that nuclear war was a genuine threat. Like, I'm pretty sure that none of the bomb shelters that anybody built (laughs) would have actually worked. I'm even more sure that you wouldn't have wanted to survive even if they had worked, Mm -hmm. and that you're way better off, like, trying to get as close to the blast as you could because it would have been a really unpleasant situation afterwards. China had gone communist in 1950. 49 is when the the communist revolution, when Mao takes power officially. And uh, the Korean War broke out almost immediately after that, which Mm -hmm. was basically a war between capitalism and communism. Cuba had just gone communist. Yeah, Cuba had gone communist in the 50s. Like this fear of complete annihilation was not an unwarranted fear. I mean, I even remember this as a kid growing up in the 80s. I remember riding my school bus, looking out the window and imagining what a a mushroom cloud would look like on the horizon. 
Well, that's and, pretty terrifying. Yeah, I was a terrified kid. Yeah, and in our intro, I mean, I remember this, right? A Saturday, Sunday morning cartoons would be interrupted by oh, this yeah. annoying test signal. Oh yeah, and then you would have this is only a test. If this were a real emergency, and I asked my parents about it one time, I said, "What is this about? Why? Why are we bothering with this annoying, silly TV thing?" And that's when I got. Uh, told about the they told you bomb. Eh? yeah wow. they were just like well i just remember my supervisor in university telling me about the like instead of doing you know fire drills and all those things they did the duck and cover drills wow oh yeah in Which, grade school that was all that was what they Bert, were doing birth the turtle birth the turtle, yeah, Bert <laughs> the turtle. <laughs> and if you haven't seen this uh, it's not a movie but i highly recommend uh, watching the video of duck and cover to get oh, yeah. a real feel for that, yeah. for that terror. Right. Little Johnny's riding his bike. A flash goes off. He's yeah. got a duck, duck and cover against a wall, because which isn't really ducking and covering. But no. yeah. And also, little Johnny knows that at any given day, yeah. he could be off on his way to a Boy Scout meeting. No matter what it, where he is or what he's doing, he always remembers his world could yeah. be about to end. Yeah. Now, Nathan, you remember this. I remember it. I actually, um, I, I grew up mostly in North America, but I did uh, grow up part of the time in Germany. And in my town, uh, there was a very important hospital and they had built a duplicate of that hospital underground for the event. Really? Of, yeah. This was like one of the node hospitals. Wow. And Germany, of course, was literally the front line of the Cold War. I mean, you had tanks facing off against each other at Checkpoint Charlie in Berlin. You know, if something went wrong, Germany was going to be really in the crossfire, and they had some, you know, strategic places that they had created underground. Elena, do you remember anything like this? Any kind of fear, paranoia? No, I don't. I was kept kept sheltered. It's funny. I had the exact same conversation as Lee when the cartoons were interrupted. That's by that all I remember. That's all noise. I remember. But I don't remember <laughs> that conversation. I don't remember. My mom probably told me it was something else. Okay. <laughs> See, that's good parenting. Yeah. <laughs> whereas, whereas for my parents, that means I said, the muffins are ready, dear. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Oh, it's just an ad for life insurance. But I said, so what? What emergency? Like if there's a tornado or something? And they're like, no. Like if there's thermonuclear war, son. I thought, ah, oh, hmm. I just grew up today. Yep. Yeah. But little did we know that that annoying noise would eventually become our theme song. No, I had True. no idea. Yeah. That's the, that was one danger, and that was like the obvious danger. The, the, the obvious danger that your town could be turned to smoking radioactive rubble. Mm-hmm. However, there was another fear that didn't just have people building bomb shelters in their backyard. It had people peering over their fences at their neighbors and wondering, what are my neighbors up to? Mm-hmm. What's going on over there? They seem suspicious. Because the other danger would be that the Soviet Union wouldn't destroy America through force and violence, but destroy America through infection and infiltration. That the ideas of communism would get sort of inserted into American society and start to spread from person to person like some kind of ideological STD or an (laughs) ISTD. Nice way of putting it. Now, I I actually remember, speaking of... uh, Bert the Turtle, Duck and Cover. I remember seeing a similar kind of infomercial type of thing, um, which uh, alerted Americans about the signs to watch for if they might be confronting a communist. Right. Yes. This is good. And it went yeah. a little something like this. In recognizing a communist, physical appearance counts for nothing. If he openly declares himself to be a communist... We take his word for it. If a person consistently reads and advocates the views expressed in a communist publication, he may be a communist. If a person supports organizations which reflect communist teachings or organizations labeled communist by the Department of Justice, she may be a communist. If a person defends the activities of communist nations while consistently attacking the domestic and foreign policy of the United States, she may be a communist. If a person does all these things over a period of time, he must be a communist. Also, according to the visuals for that video, somebody who wears drab clothes is (laughs) also very likely to be a communist. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, this was a fear that people had that communism could sort of infect the brains of the people around them. And then those people, of course, would become vectors for communism themselves. They would have, been, they would have become convinced by the communist ideas, and then they would start to spread those to you, their families, to their friends. 
It could mean that somebody you know, your neighbor, your own family members, your own spouse could have become a communist. Could I again just throw out the notion that this idea is maybe not as bizarre and paranoid as it sounds? Um, We've mentioned a bunch of times that we're teachers, and one of the courses I teach is one on the history of political revolutions. And what's really interesting there is that you basically never have a political revolution without also having foreign political interference. Other foreign powers benefit sometimes from the political instability in your country. And if we think about even how is it that Russia became communist to begin with, they're at war with Germany, among others, in, in World War I, and Germans have the brilliant idea, not because they're communists, but because they want to destabilize Russia, to bring some revolutionary who happens to be hiding out in, in Switzerland, uh, Lenin, on a train back into Russia to destabilize the country. Mission accomplished. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then that bit them in the butt. Uh, that's maybe for another podcast. But the notion that another country would be meddling, uh, funding, uh, some supporting, training, helping factions within your country that are hostile to your government is itself not that far-fetched. No, I agree. The problem is, and I think you might have noticed that even from that little clip we played, well, the American public was being taught to be terrified of communism, to be suspicious of communism, and to basically keep an eye out for communism ever, everywhere. They never really explained what communism was. Mm, that's a good point. It was just sort of a boogeyman. Mm-hmm. It was sort of a catch-all that eventually just turned into being un-American. Yeah. So if you weren't, you, you weren't conforming to the sort of American ideal of the 1950s, then by definition, you were a communist. And that's a problem for a bunch of reasons, one of which is that conformity in 1950s America was a real narrow envelope. <laughs> like that is one of the times in American history where conformity was sort of at its height. Mm-hmm. If you've ever seen Leave it to Beaver, for example, like if you're not Leave it to Beaver you are extremely suspicious. Okay, so I changed my mind. I am depressed. Oh, see, I knew we could do <laughs> already, it. It didn't take long. How many minutes yeah. are we in now? 18 it, minutes. It, already, it didn't take much. Okay. Already sad. Yeah. And it's going to get sadder, of course. Yeah. Because if you look at some of the groups that were targeted, they weren't communist groups. They were trying to get social justice. They were trying to fight for equal rights. They were trying to fight for civil rights. Groups like the NAACP, uh, groups like the National Council of Jewish Women. These weren't communist organizations, but they were organizations that were maybe challenging the status quo, mm-hmm. and that's enough to make people think that you are a communist, especially if nobody really knows what a communist is at the time. Uh, and then the FBI, uh, under J. Edgar Hoover, one of the great villains of our podcast. Yeah, he's come up a bunch. <laughs> yeah. And never, never in a good light. No. <laughs> and he's not going to be in a good light now. So he starts to launch an investigation into supposed communist enemies. And I was saying that I was just reading a ton of FBI uh, redacted files today. I was reading 150 pages on Lucille Ball. What did they say? What What were they just watching what she was doing and parties she was going to and who she was connecting Ex- with? Exactly, yeah. like, exactly that. They said, well, we have reports that she was at this party. And who like Desi knows and like yeah. all those kinds Sorry, of connections. Am I the only person who doesn't know who Lucille Ball is? Yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah. you are. Yes, well, you then are. I'll just leave it. <laughs> okay. So, but very quickly, Lucia Ball. <laughs> She's like a famous uh, comedian, like sitcom-y comedian. Okay. So she had I Love Lucy. Oh, Very okay. slapsticky. I know. I you know, love comedy Lucy. of errors kind right, of. Right, right. Yeah. Also a very intelligent person. Right. A good businesswoman. Yeah. Who started her very own savvy. production company. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but had red hair and a right. Cuban husband. Oh. Communist. 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 <laughs> yeah. That that's imme- almost immediately, as you would expect, that got out of control. The FBI's uh, searching for communists, and then in 1950, this is a critical moment. You had this sort of no-name senator from Wisconsin that nobody really cared about, but he made a big name for himself after a speech to the Republican Women's Club of Wheeling, West Virginia, in which he held up a piece of paper and said, "On this piece of paper, I have a list of 205 communists who are currently working for the State Department." And everybody, I'm sure, fell over backwards and clutched their pearls and fainted and gasped gasped and fanned themselves and stuff. Uh, And then later when he was asked about this, he said it was 57. Uh, Then later he said it was 81 because he was basically just making up Mm -hmm. numbers. And this, who was the senator? Senator Joseph McCarthy. Uh And this is where we get McCarthyism, this notion of of a witch hunt. 
Exactly. You okay. know you're doing well when they name a thing after you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so this is where we get the idea of McCarthyism, the, the concept of the witch hunt. And of course, this does fire off a witch hunt in America, not only against people who are suspected of being uh, communist, but also anybody who is suspected of not being straight. These are like political witch hunt, not to, you know, the predecessor is actual yeah. right, witch right. hunt. Yeah. <laughs> right. This is a metaphorical yeah, witch hunt. Metaphorical, it kind of works the same way, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh. It's suspected. You know, suspected people. It's poorly defined. Yep. It's targeting Mostly marginalized people. groups. Right. Or, yeah. yeah. Now, just to be clear, Senator McCarthy claims that the top levels of the U.S. government have been infiltrated by communist ideologues who are yep. trying to change the system from within. Yep. So when he holds up this list, he's not just saying, "Look, there's some people who." have political views that are slightly different from ours. He's saying they're actively working to undermine American democracy from within. Yeah, this is a clear and present danger. Right, okay. And so there's a bunch of committees formed in this panic. Uh, Of course, the famous one is the House Un-American Activities Committee. It had been sort of around since 1938, but it really found its full flower in the early 1950s. And this is how it would work. You would be accused of being a communist, and... Unlike a criminal trial where the like the burden of proof is on the state to find mm-hmm. enough evidence to warrant having a trial, here the the bar was so much lower. You could get hauled in for hearsay, insinuation, just rumors. The effect would still be very significant because you could go to jail. And you might ask, well, why would people go to jail? Because this it wasn't illegal to have communist sympathies. It wasn't illegal to believe in like socialism. But what they would do is they would demand that you named your friends hmm. as fellow communists, and then they would be hauled in. And if you didn't name your friends and your family members in some cases, then you would be held in contempt of court, and then you would go to jail. How often do you think people, in the same way that torture isn't effective for getting actual good information, oftentimes people would just say whatever the interrogator wants them to say how often do you think that happened to where people are just like sure okay a name and they just gave a name that had no actual connection to well especially because all they needed is hey have you been to a party give us a name of some people that were at this party right and you'd be like oh i guess these people were at the party and then right. they would be hauled in and their reputations would be destroyed sometimes they'd be fired sometimes uh they would lose their livelihoods of course uh one of the big places this happened was in hollywood because they were concerned that if the communists got into Hollywood, then they could change everybody's mind through movies, mm-hmm. like we're talking about today. Uh, some of the most famous people who were hauled in front of this committee were actors or writers or producers or directors. There have been a lot of people who did name names, and history hasn't been kind to those people, mm-hmm. because it said, you know, you were hauled before this ridiculous committee, you dragged other people in because you were afraid. You shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have named names like that. I can't be that harsh to those people because if I put myself in that position where my livelihood is threatened, where like I'm in front of these people, I like to think that I wouldn't have named mm-hmm. names. I like to think that I would have stood up and said, this is nonsense. This is ridiculous. The whole freaking system's out of order. You're out of order. You can't handle the truth. I would have done the whole thing. But I don't know. I don't know if no, I, I don't done know that. either. And it's not like it's an isolated moment. Like the whole, everything is against you, too. Like the whole, the whole social uh, feeling, yeah, right? Mm-hmm. The cultural zeitgeist, yeah, sure. right? And, and, uh, and the weight of the state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Elena, you make a good point. I mean, earlier you said that torture doesn't really provide very good information. I think that this is part of the reason we can see why it doesn't work so well. I mean, I would, I. I have kids. I'm mm-hmm. going to name anybody, you know, I'll say yeah. whatever it needs to be said in order for my kids to stay safe, for me to keep my job, not to be thrown in prison. But the other thing that we know happens, and we know this happened in the Soviet Union where <laughs> similar ideological crimes were possible, it becomes a really convenient way to get rid of people. For, you know, if there's somebody you don't like, mm-hmm. you know, somebody, I don't know, whatever personal slight that they've uh, committed against you this is a very convenient way to get rid of them you know also you know bosses getting rid of employees or employees getting rid of bosses i mean it's one phone call and then you can you can create a whole hell for somebody 
Yeah. yeah. No, it was a horrifying structure. Just a quick reminder, this is the episode that isn't going to be depressing. <laughs> yeah. This is the uplifting one. So it, it starts off uh, looking, trying to uproot communists in the government and then in Hollywood and then just basically everywhere. It is running r- like rampant all over the entire United States. Uh, by the end of it, according to a 1958 study by Yale professor Ralph Brown, uh, the study is called Loyalty and Security Employment Tests in the United States, about 20% of the entire American uh, labor force was subjected to some kind of loyalty test. Oh that my, is that's wild. I had no idea it was sweeping. that big. It is massive. Not only that, but between 1947 and 56, 5 million federal workers received loyalty screening. 2,700 people were fired. 12,000 people resigned. Thousands of people wow. have their lives ruined. Paranoia runs rampant everywhere. And in the middle of all of this, you go to the movie theater. Oh yeah, this is about the movies. Mm-hmm. And you watch... But will you tell these fools I'm not crazy? Make them listen to me before it's too late! Listen to me. Please listen. If you don't, if you won't, if you fail to understand, then the same incredible terror that's menacing me will strike at you! From another world, spawned in the light years of space, unleashed to take over the bodies and souls of the people of our planet bringing a new dimension in terror to the giant super scope screen. Ooh, super scope. Mm. <laughs> Already you can tell that this is a real 1950s movie with some real 1950s style mm-hmm. acting. I yeah. love it. Yeah, it is. I, I, and I will say, before I even start, I do love this film. Okay. Like, and I don't love it ironically. Mm-hmm. I love it. It's a good, it's really a good, film. good You would recommend movie. people watch Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the original version from 1956. Absolutely. Okay. And I say that also, uh, as a warning, because I'm going to describe it, and there's going to be spoilers. Mm-hmm. Spoilers okay. for this 70-year-old film. Yeah, we're going to spoil all the movies yeah. we talk about. The way we spoil... Everything. All yeah. things. <laughs> yeah. We're the spoilers. All right, so here we go. Rudy, buckle in. All right. Opens in a hospital emergency room. There is a crazed-looking man. His hair is wild. Uh, he is ranting and raving, as we just heard in that clip about how there's this threat, there's this danger that they have to stop. You have to listen to him before it's too late. Nobody does listen to him. Instead, they say, well, this guy's clearly suffering from some kind of terrible delusion. But they talk to him. They say, okay, so what is going on? Who are you? He says he is Dr. Miles Bennell, and he tells the following story. He lives in small-town Americana, all that picket fence stuff that we mentioned earlier. And he's been on a trip, and he gets back to his small town, And his secretary says, you know, it's the weirdest thing, doctor, but all of these patients have been coming, looking for you because they have the same weird complaint. And the complaint is that they feel like their loved ones have been replaced with copies. And he says, no, that's, that's absurd. How often does this happen? And and his secretary says, it's, it's a quite a few of the patients, some of the patients who you've known for years, these are reasonable, rational people. And sure enough, a little kid comes running into the into his uh, office and is screaming that he doesn't want to go home. He doesn't want to go home. His mother isn't his mother. And so he takes the kid home and he meets with the mother. He knows the mother. She looks the same. She sounds the same. She has all the memories. She is the same. And so he thinks, well, this is such an odd phenomenon. What's happening? And because this has happened to a few people, he decides that it's worth looking into. And he goes and he meets with a friend of his, a psychiatrist named Dr. Kaufman. And Dr. Kaufman at this point explains about mass hysteria and gives a very rational, reasonable explanation for what's happening in this town. The kind of explanation that I think the three of us would probably give in a situation. It seems a bit familiar, yeah. Yeah, like when you're watching this film, you'll be like, hey, that Dr. Kaufman seems like he knows what he's talking about. (laughs) Come on the Uncover a podcast. Although don't get too attached to him. Okay. Because then another friend of Dr. Uh, Benel, Benel? of Dr. Bennell calls up, a guy called Jack Belichick. And he's like, listen, Miles, you got to come over to my place. Something weird has happened. So Miles and his best gal, Becky, go to uh, the house of Jack and Teddy. And Jack says, listen, man, there's this weird thing in my pool table room. And they go down and it looks like a giant edamame pot. (laughs) Delicious. Super delicious and salty, but terrifying because it's so giant. And they cut it open, and instead of finding delicious edamame, they find what appears to be 
a human being, a dead body. But there's something weird about it. It, it, it doesn't look like a, a real human being who has been living and breathing. It's almost unfinished, like the facial features are, are really nondescript. They check for fingerprints and find it doesn't have fingerprints. It's not like it's a dead body. It's like a body that has never even been alive. Now, this is terrifying. And so, uh, obviously, Jack and Teddy leave the house because it's a little worrying. And uh, Miles goes and talks to the cops. And the cops are a bit suspicious. They're like, mm, this sounds a little bit fishy. You guys probably been drinking. It's probably nothing. And when Miles then talks to his friend, Dr. Kaufman, Dr. Kaufman's like, well, okay, let's go see this dead body pod that you found. There's lots of air quotes there. Lots of air quotes. And when they go, it's gone. Hmm. And Dr. Kaufman says, Miles, it would appear that you too have fallen prey to this mass delusion that we have, that we're being like, that somehow people are being replaced. I like this Dr. Kaufman guy. Yeah, he seems like he's making a lot of sense (laughs) to me too. But then... Miles, Becky, uh, Jack, and Teddy, all great 1950s names, find more <laughs> pods in Jack's greenhouse. And they cut them open. And not only are there people in them, but this time it's clear. These people are copies of Miles, Becky, Jack, and Teddy. Hmm. So Jack and Teddy immediately take off to get help. Whereas Miles and Becky try to go to the cops again. But then they realize something, something terrifying, something awful. It's too late. This is what's happened. These edamame pods have hatched with copies of people. And then while people have been sleeping, they have been replaced by these copies and murdered. So they go to the cops. The cops have already been replaced. They're already pod people. That Dr. Kaufman, who we all agree with, who makes so much sense. Right. Mm -hmm. Smart guy. Pod person. Ah, The whole time. He's been a pod person the whole time. In fact, everyone in town at this point, except for Miles and Becky, has been turned into a pod person. Now, at this point of the movie, there's a lot of running around. There's a lot of hiding behind things. There's a lot of meth. Methamphetamines? Because they get you when you fall asleep, Miles realizes, we've got to stay awake. So they just do a ton of meth. Really? I did not know that was available. Well, some some kind of amphetamine. Right? Okay. And so they're running around. They're being chased. There's some pretty amazing scenes where... The pod people who are all pretending to be normal people when they realize that basically the jig is up and they all sort of freeze in place. It's, it's got some very memorable scenes. It's mm. a good film. Uh, it should end. Here's how it should end. Uh, it should end with, first of all, Becky falls asleep. She can't, she can't do any more meth and she falls asleep and then she gets replaced. Mm-hmm. And so now Miles is all on his own and he's devastated. He's lost everybody. Everybody's been replaced by pod people. And... As he peers out a window, he sees that there are trucks full of edamame pods, giant edamame pods being sent to other places in the country, that this infection in their small town is about to be spread to mm-hmm. all of America. And there's nothing he can do. He, he calls the operator, but of course the operator? Pod. Pod person. Pod person. So that is where the depressing podcast would have ended the movie. Yes, that's where I would have ended mm-hmm. the movie. That's where we would have ended the movie. But then they tacked on this ending where one of the trucks crashes... And somebody comes into the hospital, because then we flash forward back to Miles in the hospital. Right. And he, he's just told the story, and the doctors are like, well, this sounds bananas. And then somebody comes in and says, hey, I just saw the darndest thing. Uh-huh. A truck tipped over, and it was full of giant edamame pods. And they all they'll go, what? And they'll call the FBI and the army, and sort of order gets reestablished. Right. Mm-hmm. This Which is, is um, so just hearing this, I feel like this might be a theme that will run through our films too, this idea of being like the sole person who knows the truth, right? right? That's a good point. You're the only one who knows the truth. And this is is a feeling that many people will have when they're watching a video on YouTube Mm -hmm. or something that's about flat earth or that's about something that's like suddenly you're given insight into this this supposed truth that someone else knows. And maybe now you're one of the few people who knows it too, right? It's such a powerful feeling. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a feeling that we get. I mean, that's one of the things that drives us to research the conspiracies that we research. We want to know what the truth Mm. is. But yeah, absolutely. That narrative of being the only person who knows. Mm -hmm. The narrative that you can't trust anybody. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You're the one who's connected those dots that no one else has. Yeah. Yeah. And and then nobody believes you. Mm -hmm. Or just... Like one of the classic little bits in this is that they get you when you're asleep. 
Right. Because, of course, that's such a great metaphor. All of those sleeping people totally. are all being converted into pod people without yeah. them even knowing. They mm-hmm. need to wake up. You need to wake up. Yeah. Or just do a ton of meth. <laughs> Don't do any meth. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's all this great stuff about the danger of infiltration, a distrust of authority, the danger from within, uh, distrust of science. It's just, it's the perfect 1950s conspiracy nice. film, and I highly recommend it. And also, it's just a good film with some wild acting in That's it. It's awesome. So now let's move from my beloved 1950s to the 1970s, and that's where you guys are both living, so maybe you yeah. guys can... That's right. Do you want to give a little bit of the background, and then I'll then I'll play some stuff from your movies? Okay. All right, hit it. What's going on in the 70s It's so bad? Man, I feel like the 70s, Elena, you tell me what you think here. This is my... this is Doing this podcast has really got me thinking a lot about the 70s as this pivotal turning point in American history, where I think there was a lot of paranoia in the 50s, but it was directed at somebody else. It was directed at the Soviet Union. The outside threat. Exactly. In the 70s, there's been a chain of events that have happened that have led up to the 70s and into the mid-70s that I think really rocks Americans' trust in their own government. For sure, yeah. And, I mean, when we've covered a lot of this in the podcast so far, but we have uh, the break-in at Media Pennsylvania which reveals uh, a lot of these covert secret operations. All the COINTELPRO stuff. The COINTELPRO stuff that, that we talked about that in our COINTELPRO podcast. But just as a, a, a quick review, that was the FBI illegally working against political groups within the United States, both left and right, although mostly on the left, uh, infiltrating them, disrupting them, um, and potentially a lot worse. We have um, MK Ultra has come to light at this point. Yeah, there was a bunch of committees. There was the Rockefeller Committee, the, the Church, Church Committee. The Church Committee, exactly. Watergate. Watergate was Watergate. a huge one. Watergate, which is actually going to be the subject of one of my two movies. I couldn't, I couldn't keep it down pick. to one movie. That's okay. I, I'm sorry. I know each of you was uh, very restrained and brought That's okay. One we movie. know you only watch two a year. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's I was the same <laughs> two every year. And I wasn't restrained. I just talked for like 30 minutes about Invasion of the Body Snatchers. That is wildly unrestrained. <laughs> but I think Watergate is, again, it's one of those moments where Americans look at their own government as a sinister force, mm-hmm. as a, a Machiavellian force interested in power and the pursuit of power over things like justice and freedom and all that kind of good American value, apple pie stuff that we imagine and associate with the United States. So it's like if in the 1950s, the danger is coming from the outside, and even though the body snatchers were about an invasion, it was still an invasion from the outside. Exactly. And so this is the moment in history where in the great urban legend of the person getting the threatening phone calls and then the operator says, okay, lock all your doors. Yeah. Turn off your lights. Hide in your house until we find out where these phone calls are coming from. And so the person does that. They lock themselves in. They feel safe in their own home. And then the operator calls and says, okay, we've traced the calls. They're coming from... And then you, they give the address. Your house. Yeah. Your yeah. house. Exactly. But uh yeah. and the person is like, oh, it's terrible news. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that's that I think that's the pivotal shift from the fifties yeah, to the seventies. I mean, on top of it, I would add also the Vietnam War is happening. Mm-hmm. We we discovered later, I think actually just recently, just about five or ten years ago, the um documents were declassified that that war itself was probably started with a false flag event that yep. was not the North Koreans, uh, sorry, the North Vietnamese uh, firing upon an American vessel that that was made up. Yeah, this the is Gulf a war. Of incident. Yeah, exactly. This is a war where thousands upon thousands of American civilians are being drafted into. So there's an, an a fear, I think, of the state. The, the the state is really a threatening force, as well as all the crackdowns that are happening at places like Berkeley with the mm-hmm. student movement. And you add all this up. By the time you get to the somewhere around the mid-1970s, which is when both of my films are released, 74 and 76, you, I, f- I think, have this fundamental distrust that the government could actually be doing things against our own interest. 
Mm-hmm. What, what do you think, Elena? I, I, I just skimmed over that period yeah, really no, quickly. Yeah, no, I would totally agree. I mean, what we'll get into a bit more when it comes to mine is uh, lemon, women's liberation and other sort of social movements as well going on at the time. But it all fits in with, you know, student movement, anti-war movement, civil rights movement, women's movement. It was, it was this kind of empowerment, time of empowerment and individual fighting against systems and, and what you've right. described too, you know, being distrustful of a government or systems that have either oppressed them or, you know, um, yeah. Today, it, it, it's a, a common phrase that I hear amongst my students when they say, oh, the government. Mm-hmm. And then they follow right. it up with something. The government does, did, whatever. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's, that is the result of this kind of moving away from a sense of trust in the 70s, that rift where people start to see the government as uh, opposed to them, mm-hmm. as, a, as a opposed to representing them. Um, I feel like that's still with us, uh, and, that legacy. And in the same way the 1950s, some paranoia about the Cold War was legitimate. In the 1970s, some paranoia about your government was completely legitimate. Totally. That is an awesome segue. To my movie. And in the middle of all of that, 1974, lights go down the theater. Well, that's some 1970s music right there. (laughs) This is a world of hidden mics and two-way mirrors. A world where nothing is private. You think we can do this? Later in the week. Harry Cole is an expert. The best there is. Let me tell you something about Harry Cole. The best bar none. I'll drink to that. Best what? The best bugger on the West Coast. So the movie that I'm talking about is called The Conversation, directed by Francis Ford Coppola and starring Gene Hackman. Although there's a lot of special mentions in this movie in terms of who becomes famous, like super famous in the 80s. Harrison Ford's in the movie. Robert Duvall is in the movie. Mm. Uh, It is a star-packed cast in this film. And as you heard there in the trailer, Gene Hackman plays the... He's the star of the film. And he plays a reclusive, highly paranoid character uh, by the name of Harry Call, who is a private... Uh, investigator and uh, designer, creator of um, listening devices. And what I I have a bit of a tagline for my my two movies. Um, I don't know if the tagline is right, but it's it's sort of a, a phrase. Uh, for this one, it's just because you're paranoid, it doesn't mean that they're not after you. The thing about Gene Hackman's character Harry Call is that he is, as a person, deeply paranoid. He has a home phone, <laughs> but nobody knows that he owns one. Uh, he doesn't give out anybody. He doesn't give out the number to anybody. He's intensely private, uh, and he's all about. He's kind of obsessive about being able to break into other people's privacy. Almost like it's. He is an interesting character in that he seems to be like an audiophile. He doesn't really care what people are talking about or what what the story is. He wants, as he puts it, a good recording. So he's but, almost like a, a fetishist for audio recording. Exactly. Mm. Huh. So he's not political. Exactly. And this film, in its way, is actually not political. It's a very personal film. So unlike um, All the President's Men, which is my next pick, uh, which is an intensely political film about a political conspiracy... This is about somebody who sees conspiracy all around him. And Nathan, your segue was brilliant because, uh, yeah, (laughs) because what I love about this film is it blurs the lines. And and this is actually something coming back to what you said earlier, Elena, about um, the the, the, the salient theme in a lot of these films is is that character who knows and they're alone, Mm -hmm. right? But is that because they're, they know something or is it because they're just paranoid, paranoid delusional and think that they know something totally, that everybody right. doesn't know? And what you don't know for most of the film with uh, Gene Hackman's character is which of those two alternatives. I like is that. The, yeah. Oh, I like that. It's, I feel like I've seen this film, but a while ago I should rewatch it. Well, yeah. 
Good luck rewatching oh, it. Oh yeah, that's right. You can't Apparently find it. You totally it's right. impossible to get again. I'll just try and regress my memory to when I saw it. We'll just listen to you describe it. Right. It is though. It is what draws me to this film because it's also something I find particularly interesting that kind of border between personal paranoia uh obsessive pattern recognition Mm -hmm. making meaning out of meaningless noise seeing patterns things that we warn against exactly frequently Mm -hmm. exactly things that we say look this is you know all the evidence points in in the other direction and yet also in this podcast we've come against over and over again we've come up against uh, situations where if we look back in history, I mean, if you think about somebody subjected to MK Ultra in the 70s, complaining to their friends and family that the CIA is doing secret mind investigations on them. I mean, who's going to believe them, mm-hmm. especially if they're in a psychiatric institution of some sort, right? So this, 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 the blurry line between personal paranoia and actually being onto something, I, I find a very yeah. uh, fascinating gray area and that's what this movie really exploits uh because i'm going to spoil this film for anybody who hasn't watched it's okay it. nobody can watch it yeah you nobody find it anywhere well so. if you are in this canada is, you can't oh yeah, watch okay. it. If, yeah. In, yeah that's those true. Are, oh, yeah. Uh, anybody outside of canada apparently can yeah and actually, uh, just a quick interruption. Yes. I've noticed we have a lot of listeners in Las Vegas. Really? Yeah. So cool. hello to hey. our Las Vegas listeners. Hello put, to everyone in Area put 51. Put 10 on red for me. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what that means. but yeah. I think it just means you just lost $10. <laughs> ah, shit. Yeah, okay. Um, so he is tasked. So um, Gene Hackman's character is, is asked by this shadowy figure called the director to start tailing this woman, Anne. Anne is, Anne is the director's wife, I guess. They're in a relationship. But he suspects, the director suspects, that uh, she's having an affair with another man. And so Harry Call, that's the character's name, is put on the case to surveil them and to try and, to try and hear them. Now, Nathan, you just played a clip where you heard a little bit of the sound footage there. And what I also find fascinating about this film is Gene Hackman's character is trying to figure out what's going on. But most of the audio that he's getting is fragmented. It's 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 disrupted. He's only getting very partial bits of the conversation, which again feels mm-hmm. very much like us yes, trying to totally. make sense of one of these conspiracies that mm-hmm. we're we're on the trail of with and our you, shredded redacted. Exactly, files you get all our... these redacted documents. You don't. You only get to see twenty percent of the story, and you're trying to piece together what it is. That's exactly what he's doing, and over the course of following this couple, he feels as though they might be in danger and he actually kind of almost breaks his own it wasn't really a rule but his own approach where he's just interested in a good recording and he actually starts listening and paying attention and he feels that they're in danger and he is tracking them throughout the film and it all um, the climax happens in a hotel room He's, on, he's in one hotel room, they're in the hotel room next to him, and something happens, and he catches it, or doesn't, quite, on an audio recording. Mm-hmm. Of course, you know, somebody's in another hotel room, and already this is these recording devices aren't amazing. It's not exactly clear what's going on, but he's pretty sure that they've that one or both of them have been murdered. And he alerts everybody, he tries to get this message out, but there's no evidence. There's no body. There's no blood. And he becomes completely consumed by what's happened to these people. And this reminds me also uh, of, of a special mention, uh, given that we're not talking about TV, but of what happened to Frank Olson's son. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. What's his name again? I'm sorry. Eric. Eric Olson. How he becomes totally consumed mm-hmm. by something he knows is true and... For most of his life, nobody else really believes it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's exactly what happens with um, Gene Hackman's character, Harry Call. Uh, who Is that how it ends? Basically. It's not quite how it ends. That's the difference between a 1950s movie yeah. and a 1970s movie. I'm not going to totally give away the ending. Yes, you should. But, well, they, we can't watch this movie in Canada anyway. They do die. Oh, okay, good. And he is sure that this has happened. But uh, the struggle is now 
to convince yeah getting people to believe because he he there is no physical evidence and he is known for being highly paranoid if if either of you have ever read any philip k dick stuff this is similar philip k dick plays with the same kind of uh, gray zone where in some of his novels the characters are actually having a mental breakdown they're 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 you know falling into a kind of schizophrenic state but it's also happening in a sci-fi future and as a reader it's not entirely clear what is kind of the delusion of this character who's narrating the story and what's actually part of this other world and of course when you live in delusional times that's a good point yeah and this is something that's true of the cold war it's true of the 1970s when the time seems so bizarre then like a bizarre accusation becomes more likely now that is the conversation with gene hackman um and what i again what i like about it is just this this kind of blurry middle zone between things that are really going on and paranoia yeah i love it all right well let's stay in the 70s yeah in the town of stepford the men are getting exactly what they always dreamed of perfect wives and the dream is becoming a nightmare for the stepford wives a very modern suspense story from the author of rosemary's baby the stepford wives about what men can do behind closed doors Uh, they were telling me about the men's association right now it's strictly men only not to mention that creepy men's association we moved here about two months ago and ed joins this men's association anything that gets him out of the house nights is fine with me I like to watch women doing little domestic chores. You came to the right town. I want to please him now. I'll just die if I don't get this recipe. It took me so long to get the upstairs floor to shine. Charmaine's changed, Carol Van Zandt's changed, and so have all those other women's club members. I'm getting the hell out of Stepford. How creepy was that whole thing? That whole thing. <laughs> first of all, that was like the sweatiest voiceover guy I yeah. ever heard. Yeah. I am very stressed out now. Does this movie age well? Well, this version. yes, this version. But okay. there's a there was a remake in ninety something that with Nicole Kidman is in, okay. and it's not the same kind of nuanced horror like film that the original was. It's it's more kind of campy and it's not that good i would okay. not recommend the redo the remake yeah because this isn't a comedy this is like a straight up horror film totally right? yeah okay so take us through this what happens in this one okay so i'll maybe i'll yeah maybe i'll set the plot first and then um and then it'll make and then i'll explain uh things further after okay so uh the main character is joanna eberhardt and she's a photographer i forget her real name but i think she was a model i think she was actually a model at the time she's got this very like sort of doe like mm-hmm. very innocent look um she and her family, they move from the Upper West Side in New York City, and they move to the suburb with their family. So her husband, uh, they have a couple kids, and you know, the idea is that they're fleeing the city. They're fleeing the crime, the overcrowding. Modernity, basically. Modernity, yeah. yeah. So they, they're seeking something with more, you know, solitude, more peaceful, more, you know... Um, Back to the days when things were good. Yeah. Simpler yeah. times. Simpler Pe- Pepperidge times. Farm remembers. <laughs> and she's a photographer, I believe. And so they they moved to Stepford in Connecticut. And pretty soon after, Joanna starts noticing that there's these weird patterns, basically, in town. It's a beautiful place. It's like postcard pretty, you know, white colonial houses. Everything's the same. Oh, yeah, her husband's name is Walter, by the way, in case I mention him again, which I probably will. Uh, And so all the women in Stepford seem to kind of fit this very cookie-cutter existence, right? She's a modern woman. She's involved in women's liberation, and she comes to this town, and these women are, you know, dressed really feminine and uh acting very subservient very as you could tell from the clip too like concerned about you know keeping the house nice and getting the floor to shine and the recipes and very homemakery very 1950s very 1950s for sure very Mm. 1950s and so she notices that this is just kind of bizarre 
another woman moves to the town named Bobby, who you everybody loves. She's almost like a, I don't know, just kind of, she's also a feminist and kind of very relaxed, casual, funny woman. And so they they're become besties. Joanne and Bobby are talking and Bobby's like, you know what? I think I'm going to get out of here. Maybe this place isn't for me after all. And then Joanna goes to visit her shortly after that. And Bobby is, you know, dressed all buxomy and, you know, feminine mm-hmm. and concerned with her kitchen. And so Joanna's like, Bobby, what's happened to you? Like, what are you, why are you talking like this? This isn't you anymore. And it gets a little crazy. I think she ends up, she ends up stabbing her somehow. Joanna stabs Bobby. I forget exactly how it unfolds, but basically Bobby doesn't bleed. Bobby doesn't feel it. She just starts malfunctioning as, as a computer would. Oh boy. And actually there's an earlier malfunction that Joanna notices too in the parking lot. There's a little car crash near the supermarket and a woman starts malfunctioning. And instead of uh, them taking her in the direction of the hospital, Joanna notices that, they drove her off in a different, uh, like in a different direction. And Hmm. she's like, that's weird. Isn't the hospital that way? Why would they go that way with this woman? She's just been hurt in a, in a little fender bender. Mm -hmm. So she's, she's the one who's noticing this pattern and these weird things that don't fit and that don't make sense. There was a lot of mention too, about this men's club, the Stepford men's club, apparently. So, okay. So this gives you a bit of the social and political context too. So we, I mentioned, uh, you know, women's liberation, beginning in, you know, 1950s all the way to 70s or 80s. I mean, there's different waves. And Betty Friedan was part of this movement at the time, and she wrote the book called The Feminine Mystique. Now, they incorporate this into the film because there's a one point at which, uh, I forget how many years previous to that, it had been like six years or something before Joanna's arrival in Stepford. Apparently, Betty Friedan had come to make a speech at the Stepford Women's Club, and that is the turning point in Stepford when it appears as though the men seem to clamp down on feminism gone awry in Stepford. And so they actually name drop Friedan. They don't they use do. like, a, like a fictional version of her. They no. actually specifically say, yeah. well, that's interesting. And so after that, the Stepford Man's Association starts. I see. Starts so up. it's a reaction to the Women's Association. Yes. Uh-huh. And so, but it's beyond that because what it turns out is happening is that all these women are being replaced with clones who basically murder them and, uh, you know, make them subservient, sexually subservient, all sorts of things. And it's because one of the men in the man's association, he was, uh, he did animatronics at Disneyland. So he knew how to make those creepy animatronic robot things at Disneyland and then he's applying this technology to the woman in Stepford. So really it's in a way it's almost weird like the movie could be called the Stepford Husbands mm-hmm. or the Stepford Men because it really is about what well it's about I guess you could look at it different ways it's about men's reaction to this and and trying to recreate this femininity and this this you know housewife of the past mm-hmm. that has been transformed by ideas and of women's liberation, women's movement. But it's also about women being sort of subjected to this force beyond, beyond their own power in a way. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a 1970s film, so I'm guessing it also ends sadly? Yeah, so the final scene <laughs> is Joanna. So she goes back to her house to tell, I think to tell Walter, her husband, that what happened to Bobby and she sees that her children are gone and he's gone. And so she goes to this, the house of this man who she already, she always had her eye on. She was like, I don't trust that guy. And she was right. Uh, Diz Koba, I think was his name. He was the mastermind. And so she goes to his house and she finds out that her kids are there, but then she ends up going into this room where she sees her clone Oh boy! and her clone like they make a clear distinction between who's the real one and who's a clone one. Cause the clone, like they have, she has these soulless, just dark eyes. Mm. And then basically you, it's implied that the clone then kills her. And then the next, so the final scene, I think it's, I think it, ref, it mimics what an opening scene is too. If I'm remembering correctly, when they're women are in the supermarket and they're just dressed beautifully, you know, with their grocery carts casually saying you know hello to everyone hi sarah how are you today oh i'm great how are the kids good and then they move on through a next aisle and say it's like this kind of mindless congeniality Mm -hmm. and 
while they're doing their grocery shopping and you see Joanna dressed in the same way and she's been taken over. Oh, oh man, that yeah. is so 70s bleak. Yeah, it is 70s bleak. I'm curious. It There seems to be a lot of overlap between the Stepford Wives and the Body Snatchers. Yeah, now that totally. we've talked about yeah. them. Now that we've talked about them like this the way, same, right? Yeah. There are these, these imposters who come, kill the original, and then live. Now with Nathan's film, with the Body Snatchers, I see how this reflects a kind of social fear around um, communist infiltration. Well, that's what's weird about this. I'll be very brief about this. Maybe it's about the fear of communist infiltration, or maybe it's the fear of McCarthy. Maybe it's the fear of everybody turning on anybody who isn't conforming. True. Mm -hmm. And so it's actually very difficult to tell with Body Snatchers, is this an anti-communist film, or is this an anti-fear of communist film? Because that actually was going to be my question to Elena. Is this a, like in your watching of the film, was this a uh, feminist take on the kind of patriarchal patriarchal culture trying to turn women as, as seeing mm-hmm. the seeing patriarchal culture having this backlash against uh second third wave feminism and then trying to re-domesticate women or is it uh is it actually a kind of a, a, a kind warning of a, yeah like, hey don't go too far down this road is or it a this kind of conservative uh film like, how did you experience the film as you were watching it? Yeah, I was, it took, I, I'm still processing it. It okay. took me a while to figure out how it felt. But I do feel, I don't feel like it's a warning. I feel like it's more the former. I feel okay. like it's more, uh, yeah, sort of breaking down this movement and its and responses to it. Well, when the when the wives get replaced, especially the wives that you come to know while you're watching the film, you don't feel like, oh, they've, they've been improved. No, it's sad because they've become, they've lost any individuality. Mm-hmm. They're all the same. And so this is the common phrase now about Stepford Wives. Like, oh, is it, you don't want to move to the suburbs and like become Stepford Wives. It's, uh, just, it's this kind of, there's, it's a bit of a trope. It's okay. like becoming a pod person. Right. You know, there's things associated with it. And um, so it's sad. It is very sad. And especially Joanna is such a likable character and so authentically herself. It's not like she's you know, going around preaching this like raging anti-men feminism or anything either. It's a very subtle, like she gives these very subtle pushbacks to men throughout the film, but she just stands her own, you know? And then it's that, even that is too threatening. Mm -hmm. So it actually seems like it's, from a 1970s perspective, it seems like it might hold up as like, like a pretty decent criticism of patriarchy and totally. And when you uh, so when Walter first joins the men's club, and he comes home and he looks a bit disturbed, like mm-hmm. he looks seems a bit distressed, but he won't tell her what's going on. He's like, "Oh no, I was just at my first week meeting. Everything's fine." But you can tell there's something he's just learned or he's upset yeah. about something. And but, he's hiding something. And he's hiding something. But then he goes through with it anyways, and he still wants to turn his wife into this so this creature, you know. And um, oh, I just had another thought and I lost it. And one thing too about Joanna is that this conversation that she has with. Walter, her husband sometimes makes her question herself. Like Mm. maybe he's right. And maybe I should be concerned, more concerned with the house Mm -hmm. and maybe, okay, so maybe I'm not fulfilling my role as, as a housewife and as, as a, as a mother. And that is, uh, that connects back to Betty Friedan and the feminine mystique. Like she went and interviewed housewives about their happiness and how they feel about their lives. And, and there was a lot of unhappiness there. And so this is, embedded in um this as well you know joanna wants more for herself and she is her own person she's not just a mother and in fact you don't really see the kids that much either Hmm. you know it's not like she's defined by that role and the other thing that i think is in all three of these films is some hardcore gaslighting yes for sure for like, sure. In, in mine, it's the, the gaslighting comes from the psychiatrist who's mm-hmm. explaining very patiently, like, no, there's nothing going on. You're just crazy. And then in yours, Ali, it's this idea of... Well, it's hard in, in, in mine because that's sort of... You are kept very much... You don't know if he's being gaslit exactly. or if he's actually uh, that's that's ki- That's kind of part of the, the allure of the film for me is that you as a spectator really don't know what's going on for most of the film, which I feel is really like... 
how it is. But right? it's then you're being placed in his spot exactly. too, in a way where he's like, "Am I? Is this true? I feel like this is exactly. true, but." Yeah, I'm questioning it. And yeah. Elena, yours sounds like it's got some Olympic level gaslighting in it. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, big time. Like she's, you know, uh, uh, deceived in on every level. Yeah. Huh. Now I was going to again the less depressing episode. Yes, right. Just to yes. remind you, <laughs> because it is, after all, fiction. Even though there was a lot of reality that it touched on. Now, I was going to talk about all the presidents, man. I feel like we don't have enough time, uh, so maybe we should just do our you know, list of all the movies we didn't get to talk about would wish we would have been able to. Oh, so many. In fact, maybe we need to do a part two of this eventually. Yeah, let's do that. Let's do a part two. All the President's Men will be on that. Okay. In the meantime, let's do some quick uh, housekeeping. Speaking of Stepford Wives. (laughs) Nathan has been replaced. Yeah. Oh, I was born replaced. He was born replaced. (laughs) I was born a pod person. All right. So, uh, yes, you can find us, as always, at... Oh, on Instagram at the Uncover Up, on Facebook at the Uncover Up, and on Twitter at the Uncover Up. And you can email us questions. And once we get enough questions, we'll do another uh, listener mail episode, which I really enjoyed. Yeah, it was fun. That was a good one. It got me thinking. Yeah, and of course, our email is the Uncover Up uh, podcast. The podcast at? at Uncover Up. I don't know, Nathan. What's our email yeah. address? Oh, damn it. Ah! Wait, no. We should ask our listeners. Podcast there we go. at theuncoverup.com. There we go. Okay. Podcast at theuncoverup.com. Yes. 